0: This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. Practical Spirituality here at Torah in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. And uh, today's an interesting day to be giving class because uh, right now going on in Jerusalem, or I guess starting soon, I don't know when, starting already, is, uh, is the, uh, I'm not even sure what you call such a parade, such a parade because it's got a lot of initials and um, uh, but it but it, it's uh, it's a parade that's in honor of I guess I'm not sure exactly what but I guess the rights of um, people to express themselves how they choose sexually now I mean if anyone told me I mean I'm already used to it every year but if anyone told me that, like to begin with, that people were going to be marching about such things, I just would never understand that. You know, like these seem to be private things. Like this should be more of a private issue. Uh, there are rights issues. Like for example, uh, the big, the hot one nowadays is Israel does not allow um, surrogacy for 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 men only men. Oh, and women are allowed surrogacy. I don't think women are allowed surrogacy here are they yeah yeah they are wow okay so there are certain amounts of levels of rights and also Canada I don't know if all of Canada but I, I you know everyone knows the famous Jordan Peterson issue with Canada as they is that they wanted the right to be able to be called whatever pronouns that they choose to be called but they wanted it legally you know they wanted a legal right such that you could be prosecuted for for uh, not using those pronouns and so I imagine there are some rights around. Um, you the right to have, like, a gay wedding cake, you know. I know that's showed up in the news once or twice. So there is some level of rights um, for such a parade. Um, but the, the other, I imagine, though, when I think about it, is is that it's, uh, it's connected to something else altogether, and that is the, it's connected to... Um, Sexual identity in general, meaning it's it's a outgrowth of sexual identity. So sexual identity is a even though we all consider that, especially with social media and you know academia and me, uh, media in general, television and networks and uh, and also uh, the more left wing government uh, you know, politics. The that we see sexual identity as an actual, you know, term that's that's a valid term today. Um, when in fact what you'll see within the first few minutes of this class is that the term sexual identity in general is, is a strange, it's a strange thing to even have us together, sexual and identity. And the reason why is because whenever someone has what's called a, a, um, a normative sexual identity, Uh, behavior, and what I mean by normative is natural, meaning that in general the the animal population is males like females, females like males, and the human population generally it's males like females, females, males like males. And interestingly in homosexual couples there's almost always a male and a female, which is something interesting and we'll discuss that in a little while. But the uh, but in other words, males like females, females like males. It's like batteries, you know. The battery, the plus goes to the minus, the minus goes to the plus. Like, like the these these things tend to get along, masculine and feminine. And in fact, the whole world really is masculine and feminine. I mean, the the masculine is the asserter, and the feminine is the is the receiver. And so, like, I've asserted water into these cups. The cup is the feminine. The water is. Is the masculine? Your tables are all held together by screws. My buttons are masculine and feminine. The windows are the fe- are masculine. The window frame is the feminine, holding it there. So masculine and feminine is—it's a built-in. It's part of reality, and it's uh, uh, and it's also in in both Judaism and all mystical traditions. Is is a major theme. Everything's like masculine and feminine in Judaism, I mean, meaning meaning. Uh, Meaning, where everything is always a connection between what's called Kudshavrihu, the Holy One Blessed Be He, which is called the masculine, Ushchinte, which is the feminine, which is our physical world, and and so the the whole point of Judaism is to cause a uniting of masculine and feminine, and also um, God is referred to always in the almost always in the masculine, not absolutely always, but. of the time referred to in the masculine because he's causing creation. He's asserting this place into into existence. And creation is is referred to in the feminine because the creation receives God's creation. And then that brings us to interesting subjects like how do men deal with, uh, how does Judaism approach men? Because we're not in very good shape, us men. Because God's causing and we're causing. We also like to, you know, urinate on every lamppost we walk by. You know, we're trying to mark our territory as much as we can. We want to assert ourselves on this place. And it's painful for us men to know that no one will remember us a hundred years from now, just like none of you remember anyone from a hundred years before, even your own blood, your own family, you don't remember a hundred years ago. And no one's going to remember you either or me. You know, maybe if I record enough of these, maybe a hundred years from now, someone will be like, yeah, there was this thing called like, you know, digital video and I don't know I think maybe we could archive something and find, hey there's Yumtov Glazer <laughs> but otherwise I doubt I'm going to be showing up a hundred years from now, I, mean, I highly doubt it which for women it's like, honey let's just enjoy the wine by the fireplace man, relax but man it's sincerely painful to know that nobody's going to remember us no matter how big a splash we make now the um, anyway, so men have an issue, and that's why in Judaism men have specific commandments that are there to, so to speak, feminize us. We have to strap ourselves down. Yeah, we got a little bondage. Yeah, we got to bind ourselves to God, like we're literally binding ourselves to God with leather straps to God. And interestingly, we wrap seven on the arm, which represents the feminine. Seven is nature, the whole feminine in the whole physical world the is is going to be in sevens that's sevens the world of nature and six in hebrew is the world of vector it's it's the arrow that's why a man is looks at is looked at like that like a vector and that vector is called the vav okay that arrow is called the vav or the six that letter is called the vav it's a connector and that's how a man a male connects to females via his vav via the via the vav that's the connector, and it's called actually vav Hachibur. vav of connection, the the connecting vav, and that's also its definition. Like, what does the vav mean before a word? V, what's it mean? And it connects Z. it connects this with that. Okay, it's the connector, and that's the man. The man is the vector. He is he is just the you could call him the implementer, but you know he implements things. But the uh, but that's the nature of men, and it's. And it's an, it's an interesting nature, it's a powerful nature, it's a conqueror nature. But it is not a very stable nature. You know, it's, it's a nature that is, uh, requires a woman. And the woman is the seven, the seven is wholeness, everything, all nature comes out in sevens. So you have even space, like this room, for example, that we're in right now is, you know, that all that all one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven is the center. That's the woman, Is the center, she's the she's the vessel, that's the seven, it's the vessel that holds all of us inside this room, and sevens is the octave, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, okay, it's the octave, it's the rainbows in sevens, and the weeks are in sevens, the moon is in sevens, the, and even females work in sevens in their reproductive organs, everything's sevens, so, so women are sevens, and it's a very stable number, six is a very not stable number. And it's um, and it's also a dissonant number in the in the if the tone if the tonic is um, I think the six is like, uh, um, sorry, never mind. The seven is the dissonant. Yeah, never mind. Seven's dissonant uh, in that one. But there's only seven notes because the eighth note is back to the first note. Uh, that's the, that's the one. One, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Here it's dissonant. It's actually a symphony by uh, Leonard Bernstein called Chichester Songs. And the very first note of the whole symphony is It's easy to remember that one because it starts uh, on a seventh. There's almost no s- song in the world that starts with a seventh. Anyway, that's my own craziness. Let's get back to. Uh, can you mention a symphony? With a symphony, no, nah, it's the only one, really. Anyway, so the the anyway, but that's the six. And men are sixes. We're sixes, and we we need that seven. And we actually wrap our filling when when we bind ourselves to God. We actually wrap seven wraps around our forearm, which is going to that state stability. Not only that, but we put a shin, a dalid, and a yud. Shin, doll on the finger, and a yud is on the knot there. Uh, the knot that's always on the box there is the yud, which is another, that's order. Order is shan't die. That, it's enough. Like, enough already, boy. You know, like, like stop trying to conquer the world and let's, like, count your money for a while. You know, like, why do we have to keep investing when we're already rich? That's the nature of man, is that he's just going to go further into chaos. Well, we put the shaddai on our arm. You know, and, and it's also on our mezuzahs because when you go out of your house, you know, there's there's no more rules out there. I mean, you have rules, but the world doesn't. And so you just touch that mezuzah and just give a kiss and go out because you're going to take the order of your home. Your home represents order. That's where you limit things. There's rules in your home. There's etiquette in your home. There's ways things are done, the way things are not done. Once you go out there, I mean, there's no rules. Maybe Jerusalem has some rules. Maybe Monroe, New York, has some rules. But the rest of the world doesn't have any rules. And so you got to hook up with that mezuzah when you leave your house. Always hook up with your mezuzahs. You see them in the gates. Jerusalem at least has them in the gates. It's in there. It's everywhere. So so you, whenever you see those mezuzahs, man, you're hooking up to order because Jews aren't random, man. We're not coming off some some like uh, some like. Uh, um, how do you call it? A po, a public opinion of what's right and wrong. We're coming off ancient order, ancient order, and we, we like that. When we, and now, how do we do? How do we do chaos? How do we do the crazy chaos? We study Kabbalah. You study Kabbalah. That'll spin you out. You spin out on some Kabbalah, and then you come back to Shulchan Aruch, Get back to the order. Which what is Shulchan Aruch? It says the set table. What is a set table? Set table is a table full of order. And so we, we study shulchan Arth, we keep shulchan Arth, we have the order. And when we want to go meditate on names of God or study Kabbalah or, or you know, some ecstatic prayer, so that's where we start getting wild. Or the holidays where we're partying hard like Sukkot and stuff like that where things get crazy. And they really do get crazy. In fact, we, we have three days after every holiday, you know, or at least Pesach and Sukkot, we have three days of repentance or anything nut, like any knucklehead maneuver we might have done under the influence of partying too hard during the holiday called Bahab yeah. now um, which, which in the old days people used to fast on those days it was a three days of fasting after um, Bahab stands for two, five, two Monday, Wednesday Monday, Thursday, Monday uh, three days of repentance for having gotten to out there now you got to kind of pull it back in same thing, like Shabbos. I'm a very healthy eater. You could probably see I'm not like uh, eating Twinkies, you know, between classes. And and the uh, and if you heard what I ate today, you'd just be like, "How do you how do you subsist on that?" It sounds like something a horse would eat. But the and I still think there's some, yeah, I think there's still some uh, some chia seeds between my teeth as I speak right now. And the uh, but one I but I'm an Ashkenazi guy. I like to eat the Ashkenazi foods on Shabbos, but come Sunday. I come back to myself, I pull back in and I, I cleanse throughout it's all of Sunday. And by Sunday evening I go back to regular food, but I, I do a lot of cleansing for that. So I don't mind partying, but I'm certainly gonna take really good care of myself the following day. Now the uh, what we're going to what we're going to see here is that there's something fascinating and that is that the term for someone who deviates from the sexual norms? Someone who deviates from sexual norms is called a, if he's a if it's a woman, it, she's called a kadesha. If he's a man, he's called a kadesh. Kadesh, male, kadesha, female. So someone who se- who deviates from sexual norms, again, is called a kadesh or a kadesha. Now, what's interesting about that, what does that word sound like? What does kufdal shin stand for? Kuftalachin stands for what? What does it mean, kadosh? Okay, it means a couple things. One is it means holy. And the other thing it means is separate. Okay? It means holy, and it means separate. And the... You forgot you have another phone. It's all right, you won the technology challenge by... Not answering it, at least. Yeah. Um, let's. That didn't mean let's pick up our phone, Mr. Addict over there. Don't worry, I'm not better than you. But <laughs> I would definitely jump on my phone in a second. You know, perfect interruption to text somebody. So the. Um, I wouldn't call myself an addict, but I definitely, I definitely gotta like. Shh, I need to pause a little bit when it buzzes. Men's phone buzz, women's phones ring, because we don't have purses. So, I mean, unless a man has a lot of like, unless a man likes low self-esteem where he wants people to know he's being called, you know, (laughs) but like most men by this point, you know, like realize that it's going to be a little obvious if your phone rings, you know, that you got issues. So, so that doesn't work. So So it doesn't work either. So men just put it on buzz forever. Like you never have to turn it on ring ever, you know. And that's it. But the but women have pocketbooks, so they gotta find that thing. And the women with big pocketbooks have to up the volume. So. What's that? I have
1: plenty
0: of men that have ringtone. Okay, but they you know men are a little behind on technology. They don't realize yet that that's obnoxious, and um, they haven't figured that out. I think a, a lot of observant men know because they we pray in minions and you're often gonna forget to turn off your ringer. So it's just like, when you get the phone, turn off the ringer and never, ever turn it back on. You know, it's just, no one needs to know how popular you are. And um, am I almost done with my cell phone rant? Oh, but you just can't believe that even in 2018, uh, smartphones are around how long now? What year did they make the first smartphones? I mean, I had a Palm Pilot at one point, but it didn't have a phone, 2008 maybe, 2010? No one knows? Right, two thousand and ten, I think. Two thousand and ten. So it's been eight years. Like by now shouldn't people have figured out that when you're gonna video, do it sideways. Otherwise it doesn't post properly. And news stations cannot use it for much. You know, or it comes out like a chimney in the middle of the screen with you know I mean I can just imagine like the people over there on like CNN or Fox, you know. They're, every time a video, they're like, something happened in Wisconsin. And they're like, and there's a video. So they're like, okay, we got video. And then all they want to know, was it shot properly? Or was the idiot just going like, <laughs> you know? <And> then, <laughs> so if the idiot was going like that, so we'll pay a $1,000. If the idiot was, the, if the guy, <laughs> not idiot was holding it properly like that, You know, okay, we'll give them 20. You know, so the... But it's like, I don't know how to convince people. You know, everywhere I go, there they are again. (laughs) But it looks perfect on my phone. Yeah, try posting it on Facebook, bro. Try putting that thing anywhere. So, anyway. um, By the way, if you're watching this, uh, if you watch it later or whatever, you got a smartphone, if you don't mind sharing it, that would make things... It makes it better. Yeah. Make it better. Take a sad song and make it better. Now, um, anyway, so the word, the kuf dalad shin is a root that means two different things. One is holy and one is separate. But what's amazing is you'll see that everything holy is separate. Things that are holy are separate. For example, Shabbat, there's six days a week we work and do whatever we do. And Shabbat is separate. It's a separate day, completely separate, distinct from that. Okay. If you have, when you when you bring up your tenth cow of your cattle, it is now kodesh or hekdesh. It is separate. You cannot keep it around. You can't do the stuff you can. You know, you can't use it like you use the other animal. It's now kodesh. It's hekdesh. It's separate. It's be separated. When women tithe challah. Yeah, they take challah. Yeah, now that piece of challah that they tithe is kodesh. It's separate. When you take truma and miser, the they, they tie the produce. It's now kodesh. It's separate. The, there's the nations of the world, and then there are the Jews. We are a separate nation. We are a sheep amongst 70 wolves. But we're also called the amkodesh, the holy nation. So holy and separate really do go together. Now, why are we calling people who deviate from sexual norms, which of course no one likes the term if you put it together as sexually deviant <laughs> which all it means is you've deviated from heterosexuality, you know. So which no one likes to say that, you know. In our you know, in our generation, calling them sexually deviant is not exactly politically correct. But what we consider sexual norms, i.e. heterosexual, male and female, which is the way the planet generally works, although I'm sure or gay people who have found, like, some monkey in, like, Africa that's, like, that's homosexual or something, and that's their big proof. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But the, but the, the when you deviate from that norm, that's called sexual deviation, <coughs> and the person who did it is sexually deviant, okay? Now, what happens is when you deviate, something weird starts happening. And it could happen with a lot of things, but but let's see what happens. Now, we're going to make a pie chart. And uh, there's a couple of subjects we still have to nail, and one of them is that one of the subjects we're going to have to nail afterwards is that desiring your gender is not forbidden in Judaism. So who's going to remind me of that? You want, Who want to be my secretary? Okay? Remember it? Okay? Now, when you look at the pie chart, so you see a lot of interest. People have a lot of interest. A lot going on. Like, if you look at... Uh, If I think of my interests, like, what am I interested in? So, I really love prayer. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely into the holidays. I mean, my name's Yom Tov, but it was not, like, it's not because of that. Or maybe it is. I don't know, but I'm crazy about the holidays. Like, I'm insane. You know, I have to raise $10,000 to feed the 500 people in my sook with a live bandstand, keg beer, several lighting effects, smoke machine, and, you know, black light club house, you know, and strobe light, you know. So... You know, that, like I'm crazy about the holidays, prayer. Um, I'm I'm pretty into mitzvahs too, really into Torah, it's Torah study, meaning actually studying it. Um, but I also I do a lot of sports, so I'm into yoga, mountain biking, surfing, and of course I sound like the biggest jerk in the world because I haven't mentioned my family.
1: <laughs>
0: but it's a lot of people there, and I can't even give them a slice because they're each one's a slice. So it's like. You know, we'll give this slice to my parents and siblings, okay? Because I'm involved with them deep. And then, but let's just give this, this is going to be like, that's going to be my wife. She gets a nice big slice, and I don't want to count, so we'll just go like that for my kids, you know? (laughs) There's a bunch of those kids in there, you know, and, which is wonderful, you know? It's the best thing I ever did, for sure, you know, like that. that's why the the first commandment of the Torah is to be fruitful and multiply. You know why God made be fruitful and multiply the first commandment? He figured when you'd read that one, you'd keep reading. Okay. As Rodney Dangerfield said, the best thing about having kids is making them. Okay. Now, the the next is uh, is did I mention mountain biking? Did I mention surfing?
1: Yeah.
0: Did I say anything about beer? I was waiting. No, beer is very important. So beer is how we know God loves us. Okay? So so I'm just going to put... i got to add more slices. So beer, I'm really into. And then um, I'm a little bit of a sucker for Mexican food. And it's a whole subject for me because it comes with tequila and Coronas and lemon twist inside and them. And then the... Um, there's other things I'm interested in too though, for example music. Like I'm really into music and I play it live and I, I play concerts and I collect guitars and you know, so I'm really into music. So we're gonna put music here and then there's audio equipment. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: I'm a little crazy about audio equipment. So like for example my car I have eleven speakers and and it's just I mean any of you get a chance to get a ride in my car, it's fabulous. You know I often just park and don't get out of it you know <laughs> like when I get to where I'm going I definitely finish the song you know until like people start running out of the building you know saying like what the hell is going on down there? and the anyway but whatever the interest just keep going and and there's many more because I'm a hiker and you know and I travel and oh not to mention I'm I'm like a I'm like a personal growth guru and like run all kinds of programs around the world I'm into stuff okay I like stuff and I also go to my I put myself on the plat on the uh, altar too, you know, I go to seminar growth. Se- you know, I go to personal growth seminars. And they're like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm here to grow, man. And they're like, but don't you lead these things? And I'm like, well, I don't lead yours. So go to work. And I'm the guy crawling. I'm, in, I'm the guy, like 12 hours later, in fetal position, with a pool of everything that's in my eyes, nose, and mouth. And I'm in a pool of it, screaming. And they're just like, do we call an ambulance at this point? you know because part of being a personal growth guru means you got to be a, you if you can't ask others to do that if you're not doing it you know you you can't ask somebody to go there if you can't go there you get that so i go there and the and i bring other people there which reminds me of two things which sorry to plug these right now but it, we have a women's seminar coming up only once or twice a year women's seminar coming up next sunday not this sunday but next sunday thepossibleyou.org so I suggest it's showing up there and we have a um, women's Hebrew seminar coming up in Elul as well the women's English is Rosh Chodesh 12th of August I think and um, and then the men's seminars will be in October and in New York in November but what I wanted to share with you was the, uh, was I'm um, starting live webinars which are going to be really amazing You know, we're, we're all on screen together and we're going to do like 3 hours in depth work so that's going to be something very special no, I just haven't figured out what the Hasidic women are going to do except maybe turn off their cameras Because I just can't imagine a Hasidic woman's going to want her face on In a webinar, you know, all over everyone else's screen So so I guess We'll have I'm not sure what we're going to have I'm, I'm, Right now we're dealing with the tech people right now and how we're going to deal with that But everyone can shut off their cameras, obviously Now, um, where are we holding? These are all my interests got my interest? What did I not include? Yeah, I did not, did I include my relationship to intimacy? Did I include that? Tell me, um, getting to know me, some of you have been around me. Like, is that something you think about as part of my identity? Is it something I think about as part of my identity? No, it doesn't show up, that's the point. Is there's no such thing as sexual identity? That's what I told you at the beginning of the class. It doesn't exist. Sexual identity. One sec. Sexual identity doesn't show up. Is there sexuality going around? Well, those kids came from somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely sexuality happening, but it's just not part of the equation. You know, it's something. First of all, extremely private, and it's it's not. You know, it's just not in the realm of knowing somebody. I mean, you know me. I hope you haven't been thinking about that. <laughs> We've been hanging out for, you know, a while. I mean, is this something you're thinking about in my identity? Have you ever once thought about it? Never. Never. It's just not... Nor have I. Nor have I. I mean, it is definitely within the realm of a relationship of a husband and a wife. You know, that's part of things. But, you know, I also don't put in my identity that I wake up every morning and drink water, nor do I put in my you know, nor do I put going to the bathroom as part of my identity. There's just certain things that are biological realities and it's a biological reality that doesn't touch my identity. A biological reality is not supposed to necessarily hit your identity. Maybe, and only maybe, that you're a man or a woman. Maybe if you're a man or a woman, like you can have an identity as a man, but I'm not sure that's even good. Because you're going to need a lot of feminine side if you're planning on raising children. You planning on raising children? Well, you better be developing the woman in you, man. Because us men, you know, we, 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 we don't like changing diapers, you know. And if they're crying, you know, send it to its mother. But, you know, send it to its mother. Whoever that, whoever those two are, you know. So, you know, you better develop the woman in you. So, like, even identifying with your with your actual anatomy is questionable, because you know you you we gotta play we gotta wear a lot of hats in life between the male and female hats, and you gotta wear them well if you want to make a difference, if you want to be a good parent or a good employer or a good employee, you know, or, or do anything effectively, you're gonna need both. Now. What happens if someone's involved in behavior? They may also have a lot of interests. But if they're involved in a behavior, especially a sexual behavior, especially. I wouldn't even know that if it wasn't for this word Kadeh and kadesha If it wasn't for that word, I wouldn't know this. But apparently Torah is telling us something. And Torah is telling us that if you're involved in some kind of behavior sexually that is not normative, Meaning, it deviates from what the Torah says. And by the way, that could be anyone in this room, because part of normative sexual behavior means with your spouse, and if you're Jewish, it means with your spouse who's been to mikvah after menstruation. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of a uh, lot of details there involved in that. What's up, gentlemen? I got a table for two right here and a single right there. Come sit up here. Come around for your single seat. Move, move the bottle and cup, please, for that guy. You guys came just at the right time. It's a drop-in course, by the way. No one fulfilled it better than the three of you.
1: <laughs>
0: there are parachutes outside. You, know, they, you guys dropped in. You know, by the way, in surfing, when we take a wave, it's called dropping in. Yeah. Drop in, bro! No! Yeah! You literally drop in, because the way you get up on a surfboard is not by pushing up, like you see the beginners on the beach in Tel Aviv, where they're like, ah! You don't push up. You know what you do? When the wave gets vertical enough, you throw the board down the abyss, throw it down there. And you just get up on your feet, You meaning you throw the board into below. It's not you getting up, it's the board's going down. And you're just swinging your feet up and under. Got that? So that's why it's called dropping in. You drop into a wave. You don't do a push-up. There's no push-ups. You don't need biceps. You don't need triceps. You know, you know the triceps you need for paddling, but not for catching a wave. Okay? Catching a wave is so dropping. And uh, just a funny thing that gets surfing so scary is that when it, when the waves get bigger, they go faster. And what happens is your board's not dropping in. It's not dropping in. It's not dropping in, it's not, it's not it's dropping in. And and so sometimes you're air dropping into a you know a 12 15 foot wave because the only time it only let you in when it got vertical, and now you're air dropping into a 12 foot wave, which means you're gonna have to keep really cool, and nothing keeps you cooler than all the other surfers watching you, just waiting for you to wipe out so they can take the wave. Yeah, so for various horrible reasons, you make sure you don't fall. And most of them are egocentric and selfish. Because <laughs> if anyone else rides that wave, you're just going to be sick for about a week. Okay? Now, the, by the way, I got rid of all that ego stuff in surfing. You know, like when I'm surfing, and normally when, it, when you're surfing, you never compliment anybody ever on anything they did. Unless it was ex- especially heroic. Um, but I compliment everyone on everything. And the, the guy will look at me like, no one's complimented this guy in half a year. And i just say, you know that... It's called an off the lip when you hit the lip of the wave. i say, that off the lip, I mean, you were... you were. First of all, you were vertical. I think you got two fins out of the wave, out of the top of the wave. And the guy's just like, well, thank you. You're welcome. You're a great surfer. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, what planet are you from? You know, with my pants and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, we were, there was so much attitude... For so many hours, for so many years, that it was like make you puke. You know, the, the attitude out there was so heavy all the time. Okay, back to sexuality. Now, when you're involved in something that is is sexually deviant, meaning it's not heterosexual, and you're involved in that, what happens is it attacks your identity. Meaning, it starts with just your, uh, you know, your private parts, and you know, maybe a little internet connection. But eventually, it just starts growing and growing. Now, there's other factors why it grows so much because, first of all, it's usually started in secret, and secrets tend to fester. You know what I mean? Like, when you're holding a secret, it makes you crazy. So, oftentimes secret, but I know a lot of people that it's not, it never had to be a secret. You know, there was no reason for it to be a secret because they were from a family that was extremely accepting and not high standards of, you know, of these types of things. So... But what happens is it slowly but surely takes over to where you live your life and where you know where you live and what places you frequent and how you dress and and uh, you know it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until it just now of course I'm going to leave some interest because people do have interests who are gay but or any other of the initials but the it starts to take over your life till you're making. A parade about your genitalia. Which is really strange. It's really strange. Like, why would anyone have a parade? I mean, you were you planning on having a parade for your genitalia? I don't think so. You know, like like for the rest of us, we're just like, okay, you know, like I understand different things you want, you know, on surrogate parenting parenting and yeah, there's things you want okay you know you can petition you can like we have ways of dealing with these things in courts of law and various you know things supreme court you know you got issues so bring your issues up but <laughs> but uh, you know i don't think this is appropriate to be parading around i mean should uh, should we go make a heterosexual parade maybe we should have a heterosexual parade you know but that would be the most crazy thing in the world I mean who would ever think to do such a thing because it's not part of our identity it's not relating to our identity it's not connected to identity sexuality and identity are two separate things so a sexual identity is an oxymoron okay? it's not it's not you don't make identity around your biological functions I mean can you imagine should we have the should we have the urination parade you know I urinate you know should we, maybe we'll make a parade over that I wouldn't want to be at the flagellants parade. Maybe with a gas mask or something. Yes. It's very easy to say that sexuality is not a big part of your identity when you're
1: heterosexual because it's not something that you're finding yourself having to fight against. Whereas if someone's homosexual... Fight against?
0: I don't know if you meant that because you always... You're incredible with your words, so I don't think you meant that. It's not something you would... Have to fight for maybe. Right. Yeah. Fight for. Yeah. Sorry, you. Um, yeah, it's I, first I, time I've ever heard you use a word you didn't mean.
1: Uh, okay, right, go on. I,
0: so it's not something that. you'd fight for. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: but because it's normative. Because it's normative, so it does Why would it have to be a part of your identity? It's not something. You, it's not a big struggle in your life. It's just a reality. Right. Whereas when you have different feelings to the people around you, and you are, and it's, it's not something that's It's not normative. And yeah. it's not normative. Then that, then it is when it becomes more of an identity because it's something that takes up more of your headspace. For example, like um, if you're in a community that's not super left wing and accepting, then you have to understand, like think about, like, well, I don't want to have sex with the opposite gender. So then, am I going to have a cut? Like, if I'm going to be a, especially in the Orthodox community, if I'm going to be, i not, I don't generally walk around talking about my sexual preferences. But if I then have a relationship with a guy and we have a child, as in let's say a guy has a relationship with a and then we have a child and we come to school, then that's like something, how am I going to deal with that? And there's so many different ramifications that you have to be dealing with where uh-huh, you're heterosexual, uh-huh. like, okay, so why does it have to be a big part of your life?
0: Right, right. So basically what you gave was much more of a sociological reason why it would become such an identity marker. <laughs> and <laughs> I gave more... I gave, and I give you that, I agree with you, no, but so but so I, I'm giving happening. more, I'm giving it's more, <coughs> one sec, uh, I could hear you, but I was saying, I think the same thing just from a st- really strong Torah perspective of like Torah nailing the word for sexually deviant people, they're called Kadesh or Kadesha in the Torah, you guys know about that? Mm. It's, it's The term is Kadesh or Kadesha. For someone who is involved in sexual deviancy. Um okay
1: But then that for me, that's why I think it is important that we do, like, for example, a parade or whatever it is, because it's not it's not about oh we're parading about our genitals. That's not what it's about. It's about appreciating the complexity of the issues and appreciating the struggle that people have to face and in every in their everyday lives. I don't think it's about Oh, well, like okay. uh, And
0: it's also it's you could say it's a very big support group for those yeah. people and the suffering they go through. Yeah. They go through a lot of suffering. I can tell you this much that as much as I sound callous or whatever, I, I counsel a lot of people with with same sex attraction all the way from it being their own little secret to like fully. Uh, you, some are married to people of the same gender, and I'm their rabbi. You understand? So, so I'm involved in this issue, you know, and very much and it's not been easy at all to because it's some of the not the worst suffering i've dealt with obviously trauma as children's the worst suffering i've ever dealt with but the, but uh we're dealing with uh we're dealing with one of the higher level you know things that people suffer and um so i'd like to talk now about some interesting factors about about this whole thing now um First of all, as we said before, that even homosexual couples, there's a male and a female almost always involved, where there's a dominant and, a, and a, there's a, a, a assertor and a receiver. And and that is interesting for us in as much um, as Judaism does not forbid your being attracted to somebody of your gender. That is not forbidden at all. The for- prohibition is only upon the act. And even on the act, it's only prohibited upon the males. Not upon the females. It's only prohibited upon the males. Rabbinically for the females as well. But but as far as males, it's that's the act is absolutely forbidden. But there is nothing wrong with the fact that a man has a natural desire for, for female. And I've met many men with this. And those men in general have a very strong female side to them. They were born with very strong feminine qualities. Well, female likes male. They like male. Now, when that person marries, it's highly suggestive that they be set up with women who have a strong masculine part to them. That they the woman has a strong male feel to her, and the uh, and also vice versa. That the that the that the um, females who have a strong male uh, male um, element to them are going to be attracted to females as well, and that's okay. You're not to act out on that. You're to marry. And and meaning our obligation, as far as you know, I don't know, bringing children in the world or like fulfilling our lives in the, in as Jews in community is that you know, ideally we're supposed to get married. So our jobs to marry someone of the opposite anatomy, meaning uh, meaning you can marry. There's nothing wrong with with a man here to marry a woman who's quite masculine. Now that won't work out so well down the line. Meaning meaning. Meaning, women who are masculine go very feminine when they turn about thirty-eight. You know, just like men go through like kind of an intense shift with their voices and their. their men's puberty is quite intense compared to women's, and the, uh, and the, the there's so much shifts for us. Because in a way, men are born little boys, like my little eight-year-old today. He's so snuggly. He's got a high voice like all his sisters, and he's just. He's just the most lovey-dovey little guy. He just happens to be a guy. He's, he's not a little girl, but he's certainly, he certainly, you know, if we dressed him up as a little girl, it would work, you know. But we have to make this shift to man, and a lot of men are not so graceful at that, um, for various reasons. But we're not going to go into those. The, uh, it's just Western man has, is terrible at trans- life, life uh, transitions. We're not good at that. You know, we, we think it's perfectly fine for a guy to play tennis all day at 50 years old, you know, when really he's just never aged beyond 18. Like, he hasn't gotten over the fact that life isn't about playing all day. So, he still wants to play. Um, anyway, but, the, but those transmi- transitions are very powerful for men in their teens, and women go through a powerful transition in their late 30s. 30, some are a little earlier, around 36. But usually by around 40, women go through a big transition. So no matter how masculine they were, they're going ma- major feminine around 38, 39, 40, and, which is fine. It's beautiful. And it's very good for the man as long as he is a man. Uh, it's not so good for a man who's not much of a man because she's she, now that she's like female, well, what's she looking for? She's looking for male. Well, m- male may not be available because... Of the the more feminine husband, or what you get today after seventy five years of feminism, is you have men who would have been strong men. It's just that we've been taught to apologize for being men, and let our wives call all the shots, which makes them, frankly, it makes them crazy that we do that. But you know, it's fun to have some power for a while, and uh, so they go with the power, but but later it it totally backfires. And uh, that's why, since feminism was, <coughs> feminism was was brought into existence, much against you know Jewish values, um, they uh, women for the first time in history that I know of, I mean, they, they say it's the first time in history, and uh, I've noticed when Googling it that women are actually trading in their men at that age. They're actually, and they're they're dumping their husbands at that age. Which is, and there may even be a couple of kids in here. whose parents got divorced around that age. That, that the, that the, but the wife dumps him. And what's amazing is that all the legislation's in the favor of which one, the man or the woman? Legislation. Woman. Oh yeah, yeah. You get a restraining order in two minutes in some states. You know. Next thing you know, the guy's got a restraining order based on her saying, "I'm afraid." And of course, her lawyer told her, "Tell him you're afraid." And what am I afraid of? Just tell him you're afraid. I'll get the restraining order. Your job, Sam. Afraid? Well, I, what am I afraid of? I'm married to a girl. I'm supposed to be afraid of him? She's like, you either follow instructions or get another lawyer. You know. And next thing you know, the guy's got a restraining order. Now he's not allowed anywhere near his wife and kids. Well, if you live in a small town, good luck. You know. Next thing you know, he's got he's under arrest because they wound up in the drugstore at the same time. There's only one drugstore. You know. What is he supposed to do? So so. Anyway, the legislation's all in favor of the women here, and the men, in the end, are the, are the oppressed by the female tyrants. You know, the, their legislation. And, and, uh, and I've met so many of these disenfranchised men who can't even see their own children, and it's, it's just horrific. And, and Google it yourselves. Go see the suicide rates. Go check out the male suicide rates of divorced men. You know, it's, uh, all the facts are there. I'm not making this stuff up. You know, they, we're living in crazy times. But for everyone listening to this, everyone in the room, and everyone watching this, and I don't care if you're secular or Hasidic, or Litish for that matter, or Sfardish for that matter, is men have to learn how to be men for their wives. Maybe not while you're tw- in your 20s, but once you hit the mid-30s, man, you better, you better learn a thing or two about what it is to be the man in the marriage, because otherwise, you know, things are going to go south quick, and you should know. When women lose respect, they lose attraction. When they have respect, they, they're attracted. Those things go together. Respect and attraction, they're always together. No respect, no attraction. Respect, there's attraction. So, you know, you, you know you, I've, I've had a lot of couples coming to me and my one of my first questions when I see the little guy and this big lady is the first thing I ask is like, so how often do you cohabitate? And they're like, well, we stopped about two years ago. Well, in Judaism, that's not even called married. Because in Judaism, the law is, we keep halacha in Judaism, the law is that you're never allowed to cohabitate with your spouse less than twice a week. Less than twice a week. Never less than twice a week. And uh, And in the secular world, this is one of the best kept secrets in the world. A lot of people don't know this, you can Google this as well, is that the, is that, in the secular world, Western world, after six weeks of marriage, people are only together once in every six weeks. Okay? How many times is that a year? What's once in every six weeks? It's easy math. What is it, 12 times? It's 12 times a year. Yeah. Anyone looking forward to that? No, no, once in every six weeks. Nine times. Nine times a year? nine times a year. Sound like fun? In the Jewish world, you can never be together with your spouse less than twice a week. Twice a week. Now, if you do the math, not, withstand, not including, obviously, menstruation, but most observant women, at least, don't menstruate because they, uh, they're they always pregnant and nursing, at least in my community. You know, it's like so like most of my friends they can count the amount of times they had to separate from their wife on one hand in twenty years. But the uh, but the anyway the I asked them to do it once in a while while we're in shul. Just kidding. So anyway, the but the anyway the numbers work out if you keep it all even. It, it comes out twelve times more. Twelve times more. That's enough to send you guys to the <laughs> To the local sitsis store, and you might as well just sign up because I know what you got on your brain. And if you know that the and it's funny how opposite it is. Meaning you're all thinking that that Judaism's here to govern your sexuality, to slow you down in sexuality, and and yeah, that may be true while you're single, but it's it's actually here to soup you up. You know, it's here to give you the you know the Lamborghini. And, and send you out on the Audubon you know, Where there's no speed limit And uh, Judaism is actually very, very pro When it comes to cohabitation with one's spouse And in fact, there's all kinds of laws set up Just to make sure nothing even gets in the way of that And people are extremely lenient the Rabbis are extremely lenient When discussing things that will get the couple together If we can get them together tonight well, What's the big deal, man? They already got 12 kids They gotta get together tonight? yes they have to be together tonight, you know, and says the rabbi, the couple's like, okay, you know, if we can't, predict, meaning it's a discussion of halachic, uh, I'm not going to give you what that discussion might be, but it's a halachic discussion, and, and they're going to go as lenient as possible for this couple in their 50s, you know, that they should be together that night. Now, the... Um, a lot of you're going like, well, what are the rabbis doing? That involved in people's bedrooms? And the answer is, is that Judaism's involved in everything? I mean, there's not, there's no subject <laughs> that it's not involved in. And and um, I was I was just uh, thinking about an important point, and that is that. Oh, yeah, just another one that Rabbi Berger, Rabbi Monty Berger, says a lot is that um, is that a in the secular world, a wife is her husband's jailer, and she has him in jail. And in, and in Judaism, the wife is the husband's liberator. She's, a, a wife in the secular world is the hus, is the husband's sexual jailer, she's the warden. And in Judaism, the wife is the husband's sexual liberator. Why? Because a secular man, what's, what, what keeps him from doing whatever the hell he wants on a business trip or wherever he goes on his way home from work? What stops him? What's, who's got him in that jail? His wife. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. But what keeps a, a man who's Jewish, like all the single men in this room, what keeps you sexually chaste? What keeps you sexually jailed? The answer is God, your relationship with God. Who liberates you? Your wife. She's the liberator. So your wife is your sexual liberator in Judaism. Where in the secular world, your wife is your sexual jailer. You ever thought about that? You all thought about that? Well, you got a lot to think about after today's class. You you got a lot to think about. One thing's for sure is that is that the Torah, which literally means instructions, Torah means instructions. So these are not man-made, you know, this is not a man-made system here. This is a God-made system. Well, meaning in other words, this is the owner's manual for the planet. And we are definitely the pinnacle of the planet. I and mean, there's nothing like people, you know, cats and dogs are interesting. Fish are always beautiful and especially salt water. And uh, birds are fascinating. But there's nothing like human beings, but boy do we need our owner's manual. You know, we need the user's manual. And the Torah is exactly that. It's it's an instruction manual. And in fact, we call it Torah Chaim, which a lot of people call Torah of Life, Torah Chaim, Torah of Life. But what does it mean literally if you translate the word Torah? What it means instructions. Instructions for living. Torah Chaim is instructions for living. God made us, man. He made us. He knows what he's doing. He's the one who gave us tears when we cry. I mean, birds don't have tears when they cry. They have tears for lubricating their eyes. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to move their eyes. They got just enough tears to move their eyes. But we can produce a thousand times that amount of tears just to wash ourselves clean of our pain. God knows what he's doing when he makes things. He knows how to deal with ants, and he knows how to deal with ant eaters, and he knows how to deal with cheater, cheetahs, and he knows how to deal with elephants. And he knows how to deal with human beings, and he made us with those tear ducts that can produce not only the amount of tears to lubricate the eye, but the amount of tears to get rid of your pain so you can cry out of buckets of tears. And we have an instruction manual on how to live our lives, and, and when to take your pants off, and when to keep them on, and when to pull it up a notch, and make it a little tighter. It tells you when to take a hot bath, and he tells you when to take a cold shower, and to wait. Keep yourself pure for the person who will dedicate his or her whole life to you. The least we can give the person who dedicates their whole life to you is some purity. That's the least we can do. This person's going to be dedicating everything. They sacrifice every person on the planet for you. And they will sacrifice everything they've got to do. If you need it bad enough, they're going to sacrifice what they wanted for you. They're going to spend their whole life dedicated to you. The least we can do for them is to dedicate ourselves. And that's why the covenant's called the bris. It's why it's on the, it's on that part of the male body. Why did God put the covenant there? And the answer is, is that's, that's where the power is. A strong person is someone who's got control over himself. Someone you see beating someone up, a big powerful Jim's guy beating someone up on Ben Yehuda Street, that is not a strong man. Then there's a man with no strength. He has no strength. A strong man is someone who has control over himself. That is the strong man. And so God puts the covenant there because, because he's saying that that part of the body is sanctified. And, and that's our biggest desire. That part of the body is, where, is the most desire. It's the most desire for transgression. It's the most desire for... for um, for just bodily function, and that's the spot. And so he puts the covenant there. Because if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. New York, New York. If you can get that under control, your strongest, your, the epicenter of, of desire, if you've got that under grips, and not literally, if you've got that under control, and you've got the relationship with God, therefore, so now you have a, you have strength for anything else. I mean, it's easy to keep kosher if you're able to do that. It's easy to keep Shabbat if you're able to do that. If you're able to keep yourself sexually pure, all the rest of Judaism is easy, comparatively. And so that's where the covenant is because he's saying, I'm making my covenant there so that you keep the covenant and then everything else goes smoothly in your life. Your Judaism goes easy once you get there. But what happens to men... Who can't stay strong there, is you find them weak on everything. You find them weak on everything. If Once you're weak there, you're weak everywhere. Your muscles just start hanging down there like Popeye without spinach. Yeah, You're just like, you ain't got no muscles, buddy. Yeah, until you got strength there, you, you're never going to be able to handle Judaism. Judaism's got too much it asks of you. and Hence the covenant is on the one place where if you can nail it, nail that spot down, you got your control over there, you got your strength built up, well, everything else is easy. But if you don't got that down, then, you know, it's just going to be a burden. Judaism's a burden for someone who doesn't have this sexuality together. I just want to mention one more thing before we finish, and that is that that this goes for heterosexuals as well, total heterosexuals. Because you'll notice, like, for example, once in a while I'm speaking to fraternity groups speaking of fraternity groups I got a group of 40 frat guys you know here a or whatever ZBTU whatever those names are of the Jewish frats so I got 40 frat guys now tell me what's on their mind okay don't tell me what's on their mind and now how how often is it on their mind it's on their mind all the time that's basically all they think about and it's literally from, the t- from when they wake up till they go to sleep, from the clothes they wear, from the way they do their hair, from the, <coughs> the job they have, the car they drive, the place they the, they'll frequent. It is a total, all-encompassing mind clamp, and they're exactly the same as the kaddish. And by the way, it is de- <coughs> it's deviant of the heterosexual mandate of Torah. Torah mandates heterosexuality, but not just heterosexuality. Marriage. Sexuality is for marriage. You have to be committed. You need that insurance policy on your ring finger. Before you get involved with sexuality, there's got to be an insurance policy that, that someone's not going to leave you on the side of the highway. Sexuality is powerful and it requires a covenant between you and another person. In order to for it to be what's called normative in Judaism, and for it to work, for it to last, you need insurance. And the uh, you know whenever I hear someone say they got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I'm just like, like do you have no self esteem at all? Like are you that far? Are you that far gone? I mean, are you really that low that you would? Give yourself over to somebody who's basically saying the following. Well, you're the best f- I've got right now. So, you know, unless something goes wrong, you know, with your behavior or any of the way you act, talk, look, say, wait, you know, whatever. You know, I guess I'll stay with you unless, of course, also something better comes along. At which point I'll be out of here. And and like I mean, how low self-esteem can you possibly have to be a boyfriend or a girlfriend of somebody? Like, I mean, why don't you just why don't you just go rob a bank and go to a shrink four hours a day every single day until you get your you know not that, that would help, but till you get some self-esteem. I mean, all someone has to say, oh yeah, you know, so my girlfriend and I, or you know. So I have a boyfriend. We've been going out for some time. I'm like, don't you have any self worth? Don't you hold at all of yourself that you're willing to give yourself to somebody who, if something better came along, would just hit the road? Or if you somehow revealed what it really takes to hold you, he would run for his life. And so you just kind of. St- You just kind of unconsciously withhold what it really takes. Why do you think they all break up when they finally get married? You know, these long-term relationships, then they get married and they get divorced. They often get divorced. They're much more likely to live with someone and get divorced after than not live with someone and not even really be together with them and marry. And then be together. That you're much more likely to stay married to that person. It's because that when you date somebody as a boyfriend or girlfriend, what you're basically doing is unconsciously withholding what it truly takes to hold you. It's not simple to hold a person. And so you unconsciously withhold what it really takes in the name of love, which is a joke. It's not love. Love is holding somebody's weight, all their weight. I hold all the weight of my children. I hold all the weight of my wife. All of it. Whatever she's going to go through, I'm going to go through that with her. Whatever it takes to be her spouse, I'm there. All of it. And what happens is these couples, after their long-term relationship, they get married, and then you can't help it. Now the insurance policy's on the finger. So what do you do? You just kind of, next thing you know, you're just kind of like, your weight just kind of lands on that person. The person's like, what the hell, man? Like, that wasn't who I married. You're like, I don't know what it is. Meaning the other spouse, I don't know. You know, this is who I am, I guess. You know, and they're like, well, I don't like that. <laughs> Where was it before? And the answer is you unconsciously withhold your weight when you date. And this is why it's so important to never touch a person before you marry them because the second you touch, you've lost all objectivity. And you also don't share your feelings about the person. Share your feelings. Just tell a third party what you thought about the date. Let that other person tell the third party what they thought about the date. But don't lose your objectivity by, you know, how many of us have been in relationships with someone that we really, they were dead in relation, in the end they died. All because that person said, I love you. You know, the person touched, the person hugged me. Or the person did this to me or that to me or I did this to them or whatever. And they're like, and they're like, like, it's a terrible relationship, but you know, after they said, I love you, you know, no one people don't say that usually, so since it was said, so I'll stick around. When if you had never touched and you had never shared those feelings, but only objectively figured out if this is someone you want to be spending your life with. You would literally, within a week or two, know whether you should be wasting your time with this. And how many people have I met who got over the hill, which I said to say such a thing, but meaning they, they lost the, you know, there's, there's the area before and the area after of like the prime time to get married in everyone's lives. And what that number is, who knows. But there's a time before you want to grab that time and then there's the time after where it's harder to get it because you start to feel desperate, and desperate's heavier light. Very heavy. People don't want to bear that kind of weight. And so you gotta it's very important that the people on the other side never come in desperate. You always date from a position of like, here's the passenger seat. I'm I'm going I'm going to eighty, man. I'm living a great life. I'm fine. You wanna sit in the passenger seat? jump in. You don't? Fine. No skin off my back. And so the person feels, hey, wow, this person's like, they're doing pretty good without me. So why don't we just add them to the equation? What if I added myself to the equation of this great person? Whereas when people date on the other side of the hill, so they they date from a much more desperate place, (coughs) it's kind of a heavy thing to get in their car. Not sure you want to get in that person's car. And so... Um, but back to the um, objectivity and subjectivity. Is that is that it, it's hard to make a good decision subjectively? Everyone knows that. You know, I mean, the like, if you make a bad decision investing, but you're going to go in stages of your investment, but you've already put in a quarter of the money you're planning to invest. You, the likelihood of you putting in that next quarter is much higher because you've already put one quarter. You're in. You got investment. And so, therefore, you want to invest almost nothing when you date somebody. All you want to do is find out if this person is someone you want to invest in. That's all. Is this where you want to be putting all your energy? If the answer is yes, you know, so keep figuring it out, but don't invest. And when you finally figure it out, give everything, do your full investment. It's a little scarier than a financial investment, but but you definitely want. If it's scarier, then all the more objective you must be. If it's heavier, if it's more consequence, I mean, what is more consequence? Investing a million dollars or getting married? Which one? Which is a bigger consequence? Marriage is a much bigger consequence. Yet, how many people get married objectively? The answer is the very observant Jews. They get married objectively, and no one else. That's it. Anyway, I bless everybody that when you do date, that the sparks fly, because no one can mistake those. You know, like, (laughs) when you go, when the third party's like, how was it? You're like, it was amazing. And the other one's like, it was amazing. Why are they both saying it was amazing? Like, they've only seen each other once, and it was for an hour and a half. Two hours. The answer is, because sparks flying are like, they're, they're, you can't deny the sparks flying. You know, when sparks fly between a couple, that's, you can cut it with a knife. So everyone should say, I'm main to the following, that that when you do date, I bless you that the sparks fly. Say, i in. And if they don't, so keep going out, keep going out. Now you don't even have to have the sparks fly because one of the great things of marriage is sparks fly. Over the over the times of growing together and building, building a home together. Uh, not everyone's so lucky to have the sparks fly uh, while dating. You don't always get that and you can't expect it. But it's certainly very cool when you got it because then it takes away a lot of the doubt is to have the sparks fly. It makes it less scary. But then again, you, it's nice to go under the chuppah with some faith, meaning with some hope, with some prayer. Like, maybe this is it. You know, my wife and I never prayed to marry each other. We put, we're into prayer. Like, we prayed a lot. In those days, we were doing a lot of prayer and I never prayed to marry her and never prayed, she never prayed to marry me. Ever. And all those prayers... We only prayed to marry the right person. Even our chuppah, she was praying in, you know, in the college chair and I was praying by the men and, and I was like, God, you got about a half hour to work this out because if, if I'm not supposed to marry this girl, you got a half hour left, but please, my true soulmate. Now, the second I put that ring on, ring on her finger, then our prayers were for each other, like that the two of us should be bonded, bonded forever. But not until the ring was on there, because I don't want something God doesn't want. If God doesn't want it, I don't want it. And we all have to think about ourselves and what is it? What is it inside us that wants stuff God doesn't want? Like where? What's going on with us when we want what God doesn't want? And that's a, that's a serious that's a serious look in the mirror. Why do you want what God doesn't want for you? answer can only be the ego it's just I'm in a boxing match with God I'm, gonna, I'm fighting him on this one well good luck feeling Shabbos you know what is Shabbos Shabbos is like get your fingers off that <coughs> Crackberry smartphone of yours and and just feminize yourself and just be the female in this relationship with God A lot of people think Eshiz Chayel is for our wives. Eshiz Chayel is about the Jewish people, men and women, are the good wife. And then what do we do in Eshiz Chayel? We go on to list a bunch of things that are forbidden to do on Shabbos. Like, why are we talking about all these malachas on Shabbos? We're talking about things you can't do on Shabbos throughout the thing, because what's it saying? A good wife, who can find? And the answer, no one can find her, because she's keeping Shabbos. She's not doing all this stuff meaning the Jewish people aren't doing all this stuff They're they're dedicated to God they're putting God first rather than the ego first and that's why we sing hashchael every shabbat right before right before the dinner God's first he's before our sexuality it's before it's before everything really so may we all be Blessed to have our minds and hearts straight, ear, and, and uh, not just us, but everyone out there, including all those people at the big parade today. Um, may they be blessed to have have themselves in the in the right in the right place, the right frame of mind. And I mentioned August 12th already is uh, the women's seminar, and webinars coming soon. Shalom, everybody. Oh wait, wait, wait. We always raise money for our family. This class feeds a family. And the rabbi there, there's a rabbi outside the window. He takes the money. So anything that folds, this rabbi takes money. Anything that folds buys fish and meat and change buys like drinks and stuff. So please, everybody, just give something like you will You'll enjoy your Shabbos more knowing that you helped a family eat Shabbos. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.